internet service in August. Be interesting. Wow, that's that's great. Yeah. yeah. Much appreciated and overdue. Hi, Christy. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> All right. So I see Carla. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Who else on your, uh, we got Mo on who's muted um, and Cheryl and Rob, you're part of the team, correct? Correct. Yeah, I'm here. Right. So Rob, you're going to be navigating? Yeah, I'll drive. I'll just share my screen and then drive it from my, my Okay. Screen. Let me make you a co-host. Um, oh. Any one of you would like to be a co-host? Do you need to share anything? No? Okay. Uh, just give me a minute. Hi, Troy. <laughs> He's muted. Hi, Chris. All right, let's see who we got here. I was oh. muted, too. That's Greg. Yep, Greg's on. Steve, you're like fading in and out there. Welcome to the internet service here. <laughs> Hopefully that will change soon. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, that happened uh, last Thursday. The only thing that I thought was interesting, it kind of dropped me, and then within a matter of seconds, it kind of picked me back up again. So I don't know what the system is. Well, today at the office, is. we were having a staff meeting, and Tegan and I were in the office, and the internet went out on us. So, well, if that happens where you're at, then I'm not so concerned about where I'm at. I don't know what the issue was there. Uh, Rob, you are now a co-host, just so you know. Okay. Okay, sounds good. And it looks like Christy, you are recording, so that this could be posted. Absolutely. Okay. I'm assuming, is Sarah on? Uh, she just uh, joined she is. on. Hi, Sarah. Before I ask Sarah to call the roll, just a bit of housekeeping. Um, number one, I think for the record, everyone should be aware of the fact that obviously this is a Zoom meeting. Having said that, um, we have advertised this meeting um, and followed all of the legal obligations that we are aware of, which would include adjoining property owners, which obviously doesn't make any sense here. Newspaper legal notices, and we didn't post a physical site, which also doesn't make any sense. However, the announcement was on the Route County website under the meeting agendas, and uh, it simultaneously appears um, on Facebook under the Route County Planning Commission Facebook page. I think I have that correctly. Um, a couple of odds and ends, because this is a Zoom process and in in a venue, Zoom venue, we always run into this issue of people being recognized in terms of those wishing to speak. There is a function on the Zoom um, platform that talks about and provides the opportunity for people to raise their hands uh, you'll find that under the participant list, and I will, uh, I'm not co-hosting this meeting, but I believe that, is it Rob is, as well as Sarah watches it, as does Christy, so I'm, I'm confident that once they see a raised hand, 
um, they are in a position to acknowledge that raised hand and get the questions out there. The other thing that's available to the public is they're capable and able of calling in. Again, that phone number is available to the public. Uh, I'm not aware at this point in time that we have any public, but that's not the point. Um, so with that thought in mind, oh, one other last bit of item, and I, but I think everyone on this call or on this venue is pretty familiar with the process. It is important um, if you're not speaking to put yourself on mute. Um, that kind of eliminates a lot of background, potential background interruptions as well as kind of keeps things rolling along. So with that thought, can't think of anything else that's going on in terms of housekeeping. The obvious things are uh, A, the mute thing, and B, about silencing cell phones, but I'm not sure that that's appropriate here. Um, with that, are there any questions from anyone that's on board at this point? Hearing none, I'd like to call again to order the Route County Planning Commission meeting of June 11th. Sarah, if you would be so kind as to call the roll. Sure. Okay, Steve Warnke. Here. Brian Kelly. Andrew Benjamin. Troy Brookshire. Here. Bill Norris. Here. Uh, Greg Yeager. Here. Peter Flint. Roberta Marshall. Billy Metzelfeld. Here. Here. And uh, Rohail Abid. Thank you, Sarah. We do have a <laughs> quorum, so we may proceed. Uh, first item on the agenda after call to orders, public comment. Again, I'm kind of flipping through and I'm not seeing any public, but with that, regardless, um, anyone who wishes to address the commissioners on any topic that is not on the agenda this evening, now would be the time to do so. <coughs> Hearing none, uh, we'll move forward to the next item for discussion, Route County Hazard Mitigation Plan. Um, Christy, I'd appreciate it if you would perhaps provide an introduction. I know you've got a couple of presenters for sure one, um, but I think it would be good for the commissioners to understand a, the hazard mitigation plan, why it's in front of us before we launch and jump into the plan itself. Sure. Um, so we have been contacted by emergency management who has been tasked putting together this plan that they are going to present before you tonight on the Route County Hazard Mitigation Plan update. Um, I thought it was important for them to present to you all because this timing, although is a requirement on their part to present to the Planning Commission, we started having these discussions when we um, decided to go through the update of our master plan. And this is an important part I think we should all take into consideration as we pick back up that review of the master plan of some of the important aspects of this plan and see if there is a way that we can potentially link those plans whether we reference it in the updated master plan when that time's appropriate 
um, if there is some mitigating factors that we should be um, including in the master plan and you know what can we do to help this process as well so I, I think that this is a good partnership to be dealing with both of these plans to see if there's a way that we can link them um, or you know just even having that information as we are going through the update process um, so this is just one of those technical aspects of the plan update where i think that it's going to be good to hear from our experts um, to tell us you know why this plan is important and and um and like i said how we can link those plans we have um, mo and cheryl from route county um, here before us, and then their um, consultants from Tetra Tech, who um, I believe we had an informal introduction before, but that's Carla and Rob. Um, so I believe Rob will be um, driving, driving the bus here um, through the presentation, and um, I'm sure we'll all have a bunch of questions for them. Sounds good. Thank you, Christy. I really appreciate that. Um, Rob, I think you're on. Okay, thank you. Mo, do you wanna say some opening remarks? Sure, I'll say a few things. And one other introduction that wasn't made, um, but I'd like to add is uh, Mark Thompson from the state, uh, from the mitiga mitigation office in state is also on the line. Uh, so he'll make sure if I say anything wrong to uh, correct me. Um, but thanks for giving us the opportunity to uh, use your committee meeting today. Uh, this We believe this is an important project as we update our hazard mitigation plan. Um, the secondary reason why we do this is that uh, a hazard mitigation plan is required by the Federal Emergency Management Agency or FEMA uh, to be completed or updated every five years. And while there are no as a mitigation plan police out there um, but the leverage that they have is that should we have a a major disaster and we're looking for some sort of grants to help us recover um, they can withhold those grants um, that would be a possibility if you do not have a current hazard mitigation plan so that's definitely a motivating factor but the primary reason why we're updating our hazard mitigation plan is that it is important for us in order to be optimally prepared to respond uh, as well as recover from emergencies, that we have a shared understanding throughout the county with all of our partners to include uh, the special districts like water districts, the fire protection districts, as well as the municipalities, that we have a shared understanding of what the uh, primary uh, hazards are. And when I say primary, I mean uh, those that are a combination of uh, most likely uh, or most dangerous, and I believe Rob will probably go into that a little bit, so I won't go into a great deal on that, but it is important that we um, understand and have an agreement about what those primary hazards are that the residents and guests of Route County may experience. Um, but the purpose isn't just identified hazards. The real um, key behind a hazard mitigation plan is to identify some mitigation projects that can be done uh, to reduce the susceptibility to those hazards, whether it be, um, although not, you may not be able to do much about the likelihood of a, of a uh, wildfire, um, but there are some things you can do to uh, mitigate its impact or reduce the damage it would cause. So 
realizing that we don't have the resources to fully mitigate every single disaster that may occur. Um, but that's why we have to come with a, a shared understanding of what those primary hazards are so that we can use our resources that we have most effectively and counter those hazards that are the most dangerous and most likely. So we've started this um, about a year and a half ago now. Of course, we got delayed with the COVID-19 response. Uh, we did go through a, a process of selecting a contractor, uh, which uh, we selected Tetra Tech, and that's where uh, Rob Flain or Carla Burex are from, and they'll be leading um, the discussion today. Uh, but we're at the point now where we've gone through all the analysis. We've identified some projects. Uh, Tetra Tech uh, drafted the final plan. Uh, we submitted that plan to our stakeholder review. We have, a, I think it's 11 primary stakeholders. Like I said, it's the uh, incorporated areas, um, a couple, a couple of uh, water districts as well as a fire protection district. Uh, and they provide some comments and now we are required to have a public review. And uh, this is an opportunity where we're, we're kicking off the public review with this meeting. We did advertise this meeting in a paper and a press release. Um, I'm not sure how many public participants we have today, um, but then we will have at least a two week period to accept public comments uh, to the uh, final update uh, before it goes, continues down the road and it goes before the commissioners, it goes before the state, and ultimately it will get approved uh, by FEMA. So that's where we're at. Uh, so we're starting the public review period now. And uh, with that, I'll hand over to Rob. Okay, thank you, Mo. Um, first off, let me introduce myself. My name is Rob Flaner. Um, I am the Hazard Mitigation Program Manager for Tetra Tech. And uh, this is uh, kind of what I do, um, mitigation plans. And I'm supported today by Carla Burex, who is our uh, operations manager from the Denver office. And she's been uh, also supporting this process and so we're glad to be here tonight and present this draft plan. Like Mo said, we are in the middle of a public comment period. FEMA requires that these plans go through an opportunity for the public to provide comment. So we've advertised that as such and the real driver behind tonight's presentation is to not only present the basics of why we're planning and what the outcomes were, but it to inform the public and how they can to, to view the plan and provide comment. So. Uh, our public comment period runs from June 5th to the 19th. And um, at the end of the 19th, we'll finalize the document and get it into the protocol as we'll show here later in the presentation. Um, so what we're gonna talk about tonight is I'm gonna go over some basics. Um, you know, this is a hazard mitigation plan. It is not an emergency management plan. It's not a recovery plan. It's very specific to this term, uh, very specific to this term mitigation. So to understand that, we need to know what that is. I'll go over what the drivers for why we do these plans. Um, spend a little time going over the process that we went through. It was a four-phase four process that we've gone through. Like Mo said, it's been about a year and a half now since we started, and we had some delays due to some some issues. But um, we're at the end of the end of the the, the rope as it goes, and um, and then we'll kind of go over what's next and and provide guidance on how the public can provide comment on the plan. So. This graphic is real important. I start almost every presentation I ever do with this graphic in that um, to understand what mitigation is, you really need to understand the. sorry, I must have my auto run on. <laughs> uh, you must be able to understand what, what mitigation is 
Um, FEMA actually has uh, officially defined mitigation for the terms of these planning as a sustained action taken to reduce or eliminate long-term risk to life and property. Um, when we talk about mitigation, uh, we want to look at this graphic. This graphic are the five phases of emergency management. So we, when we look at the, the circle of life in the emergency management uh, continuum, we, we talk about prevention, protection, response, recovery, and mitigation. Um, if we're doing a good job of taking sustained action taken to reduce or eliminate long-term risk to life and property, uh, this circle gets smaller, right? We're reducing future loss. We're avoiding future loss. And, and that's really the driver behind mitigation is understanding what your risk is and what can you do to reduce that risk prior to the action. Um, the most important word in this definition is the very first word, sustained. Um, we're not looking for the quick fix here. Uh, this isn't putting up sandbags when it floods every time, or this isn't just, uh, you know, uh, making sure you have water on site when you have the fire already going. This is about long-term sustainable projects that what we refer to in the business as useful life. How long will the project be sustainable at avoiding future loss? And that's a real important factor that drives what these plans are supposed to do, right, is it really comes down to alternatives analysis. What is the best alternative? Um, a lot of times when people dive into these plans, they go, well, I got to do this. I got to build this levy. That's the only solution we have. And while levies can be effective, levies cost a lot of money to maintain. And sometimes it's not the best alternative because it's not the most sustainable. And that's really what, what good mitigation is about is, is understanding risk and then understanding all the alternatives that you have to reduce that risk. And, and then picking the one that is the most sustainable. So keep this in mind as we go through this presentation because I'm gonna say a lot of times about making the circle smaller, and that's what I mean. We're really trying to be effective here in mitigation to reduce our necessity to prevent, protect, respond, and recover. Um, there's a driver for these plans. It's called the Disaster Mitigation Act of 2000, or also known as Public Law 106-109. Um, it amended federal legislation called the Stafford Act. And um, under that legislation, that's the money that becomes available after there is a disaster declaration. Um, what will happen is an event happens. And if the impacts of that event exceed the state's or local government's capacity to respond to that, they can go to the United States federal government and say, we need help. And that's when you hear about a presidential disaster declaration. And when that happens, under the Stafford Act, funnels of money become available to help you recover and respond to that event. Um, what the Disaster Mitigation Act did is it amended the Stafford Act and basically established a planning nexus to funding eligibility for certain pots of money. Not all pots of money, but certain pots of the money. Um, so when you look at this graphic about no plan, no money, that's true. And, and for certain pots of funding, what we call the post-disaster mitigation grant funding, or the pre-disaster mitigation grant funding, uh, the key way to that funds is an approved hazard mitigation plan. Not all post-disaster funding is contingent on this plan. So for example, public assistance or individual assistance at the local level is not contingent on this plan. And a lot of people misunderstand that and they think, oh, if I don't have this, I'm gonna get no assistance. And that's not true. Um, so, but the driver for this is really about the money. Uh, people want to be eligible to apply for these funds. Um, as we all know, the intensity, severity, and magnitude of disasters is increasing. And this country is investing a lot of money in buying down risk. 
Um, Congress is very, and it doesn't matter which party of Congress you're in, all parties of Congress are all in on buying down risk. And there's a lot of programs under the FEMA umbrella, the HUD umbrella, the Economic Development Administration umbrella, and all of them have a planning nexus. Um, nobody's going to give you money without a plan on how you want to spend it. So that's, that's a real driver for these. Um, but I like to think about the other reasons for planning. And um, to me, these, you know, I'm going to be kidding you all, whoop, sorry, I'm going to be kidding you all if I say it's not about the money. Uh, the number one reason why everybody does one of these plans is about the, is about the money. But more importantly, there's a lot of reasons to do these plans, right? Um, you want to be proactive versus reactive. Um, I actually had the pleasure of being, being a, what's called a disaster assistance employee for, for FEMA. And under that DAE uh, contract, my job was to go out after a disaster and go into these communities that were impacted. And nine times out of 10, I was saying, hey, I got a bucket load of money. What do you want to do with it? And nine times out of 10, I heard, I don't know. I want to recover. Uh, I got to get back to where I was before the event. That's not mitigation. Um, you know, when we look at that graphic, right, where did mitigation fit in that graphic? It's before or right after the response and before recovery. And it's in, in this concept of proactivity versus reactivity. The last time you want to sit and say, oh, what should we do? Should we put that road back? Maybe there's a better alternative. You're not going to be doing that when you're in the throes of a response. That's the last time you have to sit and say, oh, I think we better look at alternatives. Because what's your number one objective, right? To get everybody back into their homes, get people back to work. And that's not the time to be sitting there saying, what are alternatives? So being proactive, you take that stress out of the equation. And it allows you an opportunity to really holistically look at the problem. We get to look and focus at that concept of sustainability. And that's a key driver for mitigation, right? What is the best alternative? What is the most sustainable? Um, it is a key element of emergency management, as we saw. We're trying to make the circle smaller. And, and we are trying to set the course. Um, while this is not a response or a recovery plan, it can definitely inform those two plans. There's going to be valuable information in here on risk and vulnerability that can inform those other planning processes. And last but not least is, you know, you, this requires both a public and a political support. Two-thirds of all mitigation actions that FEMA impact private property. So the bottom line is I can't come elevate your home unless you want me to. I can't buy you out unless you want me to. So you have to have public support. And as we all know, if you don't have public support for something, you're not going to have political support. So when the rubber meets the road on this plan, it has to be adopted. It's going to have to be adopted by Route County. It's going to have to be adopted by each of our municipal and special district partners. So you have to have political support. So, you know, what this does is it's all forward facing and it really, these are really good drivers for why to do one of these plans. Um, Carla's and I's job uh, is to make sure that we dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Um, there, there is a law that dictates what these plans should have, and it's Section 201.644 CFR, Code of Federal Regulations. Um, in a nutshell, this planning process must engage the public through all phases of the plan's development. So we had to make sure that every phase of planning process was accessible, and, and we did that. We advertised, we had public meetings, we had a survey, we had a website. Uh, when we had uh, oversight steering committee meetings, those were open to the public. So all phases of the plan were open to the public. We also have to review and incorporate other plans and programs that support, that can support or enhance mitigation. And Christy, you hit the nail on the head about why one of the real reasons we're talking to the planning commission, because the number one 
initiative that FEMA has for these mitigation plans is what we call plan integration. We need to set the path and identify the course for how this plan can integrate into other plans. And the, where we always start with that is comprehensive land use planning or general plans or master plans. And then we look at capital improvement plans and we look at emergency operations plans and those are all integratable components. And this plan has gone through a very arduous review of identifying what those plans and programs are and trying to identify points of integration for all of our planning partners. Uh, the hub of this wheel is a doc uh, of, this, of this plan is a risk assessment. I always say you can't reduce risk if you don't know what risk is. And so we've gone through a very uh, comprehensive process of identifying hazards of concern, what is the risk, and we'll talk in a minute here about how risk is defined for this process. And then we have to identify and prioritize actions. And we have to identify and prioritize actions that address the risk with the greatest impacts. So we'll talk a little later about how we ranked risk and every partner has a different degree of risk, right? If I don't live downstream of a dam, I don't have dam failure risk. If I don't live on the coast, I don't have tsunami risk. So obviously everybody has their own risk. So each planning partner had to assess their risk and look at it, look at it and measure it as it impacts them. And then last but not least, these plans are supposed to be dynamic. Um, FEMA has these updated every five years, but they also want them being reviewed and evaluated during the performance period. So a key element of this plan is a plan maintenance strategy on how the county will keep the plan dynamic and ongoing. Um, like I said earlier, this is a plan update. So FEMA requires these to be every, uh, updated every year. There was a previous plan prior to the plan that we're updating today is, uh, was done in 2010. That was the last planning effort for Route County, and yeah, yeah, we're we're under an expired plan right now. <laughs> and uh, you know, Route County is not alone. There's a lot of counties across the country that have lapsed plans or whatever. It, it's not Armageddon. It's not like oh my God, I'm I'm in I'm in peril because my plan's expired. It's only Armageddon if you want to go get money. And if you want to go get money, FEMA's going to say, yeah, you can get money, but you have to do your plan first. So we want to avoid that step because there's a lot of money out there to go get and, 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 and whatnot. But yeah, we have an expired plan and that last plan assessed 16 hazards of concern. It identified four goals, 15 objectives and identified and prioritized 33 actions. Um, our starting point for this update was to look at those. Okay, where are we at? Are those goals still relevant? Uh, where, what actions got done? What didn't get done? So through this update process, we've re-engaged the public We've reviewed and updated those goals based upon where we think we need to be now. Uh, we've reviewed and updated core capabilities so we can identify those integration points for other plans and programs. Uh, we've updated and refined and significantly refined the risk assessment. This risk assessment is way more robust in this plan than it was back in 2010. And that's namely because we have better tools to support risk analysis now. And uh, we reconciled all the prior actions and we actually looked at what was done and what wasn't done. And if something wasn't done, we said why. And we used that knowledge to inform the action plan development for this process. Uh, those new actions have been prioritized and this plan now has a very robust plan maintenance strategy that includes processes for the county and its partners to look at you know, accomplishments over uh, on, on within the performance period. Um, the scope of work for this process followed these four phases. Um, organized, uh, we organized who the plan was going to cover under step one, and that's our what we refer to as our planning partners. We had an oversight body. We refer to it as a steering committee. 
that kind of was our vetting platform where the, the core planning team, and that was basically Mo and, and the key people from TetraTech, we said, okay, here's what we think the hazards of concern are. What do you think? And, and we vetted that through a committee-based approach. And then we transitioned into step two where we did the risk assessment. And that's mission critical. We had to have that risk assessment before we could goal set and do anything else because we had to understand what the risk was. And then we moved into step three where we developed our strategy and our strategy was centered on a mission, vision, statement for the plan, goals, objectives, and then finally actions. And then where we are right now is in the throes of, of uh, step four, where we're getting ready to submit the plan for review. Once the plan gets approved by the state and FEMA, then we'll adopt and we're, we're on the books for the next five years. Um, now I'll go through kind of the, the different steps in a little more detail. Uh, first, we'll be organizing resources, which is the, the planning process. Um, the very first thing we had to do was identify who this plan was going to cover. Um, you'll notice here that it's kind of a diverse partnership, and um, that's on purpose. Uh, when FEMA passed the Disaster Mitigation Act back in 2000, they redefined what a local government was. And prior to the law, a local government was a city, county, tribe, or state which kind of makes sense. That's what we all associate with local governments. After the law, they included special purpose districts that have junior taxing authority. And I remember when this law first came out and, and we were all scratching our head as practitioners that we're going to have to respond to this law and say, what the heck? Why would you include districts? Districts don't have permit authority. Districts are not responsible for codes and standards. Districts, districts, districts. And uh, when FEMA came back with their explanation, it made a lot of sense. Um, the number one, one of the number one objectives of the Disaster Mitigation Act is to make the nation's critical facilities and infrastructure more resilient. That's in the statute. It's one of the drivers for it. And when you think about it, who owns and operates the nation's critical facilities and infrastructure? Who owns our schools? Who owns our hospitals? Who owns our flood control facilities? They're taxing districts. And so when you start thinking about water and wastewater and power and these things, it makes sense why you would want these people to be part of the planning process. So when you look at Mount Warner Water and Sanitation District and the Upper water, uh, Yampa Water Conservation District, they are key owners and operators of faci critical facilities in our planning area. And getting them on board in the process and having them assess their own core capabilities and identifying and prioritizing actions makes perfect sense. So they're key elements of this process, and this represents a key enhancement to the 2010 plan. The 2010 plan did not really have active participation as planning partners. Um, they were, part, they were uh, participants as stakeholders, but not true signatures to the plan. Uh, these entities will be, and I think that's been a great expansion of the scope of the plan, bringing these entities in. So that's our planning partnership, and that was the first stage of the process was to, to identify that. Um, then uh, what we had to do was we, um, you know, the county had to get contract support. So like Mo said, they went through a procurement process and they hired us. Um, we brought in the technical expertise to help facilitate the process. And we, you know, we organized a core planning team. Uh, we organized that oversight steering committee, which was made of uh, planning partners and stakeholders within the area. Uh, we went through an arduous data acquisition process. We had to have data to be able to support our risk analysis. Uh, we did agency coordination throughout, and that's not just agencies within the county. We coordinated extensively with the state and FEMA and other uh, agencies within the state and or within the state or even outside the state that have some sort of stake in this. And um, that was really important. And, and all these agencies have been CC'd on this process and have been given opportunities to provide us comments. 
Um, this last bullet is really important. We, you know, we had to do a core capability assessment, which is built on a review of relevant plans and programs in the area. So we did a, a, a really deep dive into looking at what plans exist in Route County that really can support and enhance the outcomes of this. And then obviously because FEMA mandates that these plans have to be conducted in an open public process, our public engagement strategy was critical. And, and we don't just say public meetings here. It's not just public meetings, it's a strategy, right? So we did a survey and we deployed that survey. We got 184 responses. That doesn't seem like a lot, but it, that 184 responses actually gave the steering committee some biofeedback on what did uh, John Q. Citizen and Route County think about risk. We have a website, which we've advertised all assets of this plan. And when we had a press release, it was there. The plan will be posted there. It's gonna be the one-stop shop for all information on this plan. We utilize social media and Facebook, Twitter, Nextdoor, all these, these options that there are uh, avenues that the county has available to market and advertise the survey, to market and advertise public meetings. We did press releases. So, you know, we got the word out as best as we could. And, and throughout the process, not just at the end, not just at the beginning, continuously throughout the process. Under that first step, one of the key mission elements uh, for the steering committee was to def define a mission vision for the state, uh, for this plan. Uh, they decided to come up with a, what we call a guiding principle. Uh, the guiding principle for this plan is to reduce or eliminate the long-term risk to loss of life and property damage in the county from natural disasters. This is our theme. This is our mission statement. This is this is what we're we're striving to achieve through this plan, and uh, it, it's real important to have a, a guiding principle or a mission vision statement because that should drive the next step, which is goal setting. And so, what we did is we revisited the goals from the last plan, and we said, are they still relevant today? And what the steering committee determined is, yeah, kinda. Um, and revisions and enhancements were made to those goals to enhance them for this next five years. And that's really good planning. Um, you know, good plans don't stand on past goals. And, and that's one of the reasons why FEMA wants you to update these plans is to really sit back and say, where do we want to go in the next five years? What, what do we want to do? Um, after we identified these four goals, we identified a series of objectives that uh, we call as our measures. Uh, how are we going to measure success? And uh, the objectives are linear, what we call linear. They're standalone components of the plan. They're not a subset. And um, we use those objectives to prioritize the actions because we want to have multi-objective actions. But the objectives really are our metrics for measuring success. And so we've identified those as well. And now we, uh, after we did that, we transitioned into that next step where we did a capability assessment and we looked at our risk. Um, under this step, each planning partner was asked to assess their core capabilities. Um, and, and keep in mind, we had two different kinds of planning partners in this, right? We have municipal governments and, and special purpose districts. Uh, there are different sorts of cap capabilities. Districts are service pro providers. They're not permit authorities. So it's not Mount Warner's water district's responsibility to worry about protecting my home. That's not their job. They don't have the capability to do that. They're not a permit authority. They don't have codes and standards that regulate development. That's not their job. What their job is to provide services to my home, and that is to provide water. So when we look at core capabilities for a district versus a municipality, we look at those different capabilities. And we had two different uh, tools to do so. 
where we were able to guide the discussion for the core capability assessment for districts, and we were able to guide the core capability assessment for municipalities. Um, what we wanted to do is look at any legal and regulatory. Now, you know, there are some regulatory impacts on districts. Um, they have mandates, you know, water districts have EPA mandates for water quality and bioterrorism. And so those drive certain actions that districts have to do. It doesn't mean they have permit authority, but they're, they're overseen by a law. We want to look at what their fiscal capability is. There's no such thing as free FEMA money, right? Every FEMA grant you're going to apply for requires some sort of local match. Where's that match going to come from? And so we, look at, we looked at that in the fiscal uh, aspects. We look at administrative, technical, education outreach, and then last but not least, this integration opportunity. For every core capability we looked at, is there an opportunity to integrate the components of this plan to support that? So that was a key step under the core capabilities assessment. And then probably the most important step is this risk assessment, right? The hub of the wheel. Uh, like I said, you can't reduce risk if you don't know what risk is. Um, risk, and I'll go over a minute, has a clear definition for this plan, but uh, what the purpose of this is to understand what we're trying to mitigate. And so under this step, uh, we had to clearly define what is risk. And for this plan, risk has been defined as a function of four factors. First off, a hazard, okay? What's the source? What's causing the problem? Um, now, we always dive into this with these plans and we always get asked questions on this and I'll just cut to the chase on this. The law is very specific. When I say the law, 44 CFR section 201.6 <clears throat> clearly states, thou shall assess natural hazards of impact. So we have no choice. At a minimum, we have to identify natural hazards. Then the law further states, thou may assess other hazards of interest. What that means is these other non-traditional, non or what we call non-natural hazards, such as terrorism, human cause, cyber, uh, forever pandemic has been considered another hazard of interest. Pandemic is technically, prior to where we are right now, pandemic has not typically been classified as a natural hazard to be mitigated through proactive sustainable actions. It's a public health hazard. It has a whole different thing. Uh, we, we, we realize now that that's probably gonna change and our pendulum is gonna swing. Um, obviously, we hit right in the middle of a pandemic and this plan does not address pandemic to any large scale. And um, at this stage of the game, it, we can't. We don't even have the data and analysis from this event. It's still ongoing. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that the next five years, we're going to probably see the pendulum swing where these plans will be including pandemic. And that stage was set when the president declared a Stafford Act declaration for a national pandemic, the first of its kind, a national uh, hazard declaration under the Stafford Act for uh, COVID-19. So when we talk about the functions of risk, we talk about hazard, the source of the problem. And then what we wanna say is what's exposed. Um, when we talk about exposure analysis, we are talking about what we call assets. And we looked at both you know, improved assets and natural assets. So assets are defined as buildings, structures, roads. Uh, you know, A lot of people, we always get asked about human capital. And yeah, we do care about life and hu humans are assets. Um, but when you look at it in the context of a risk assessment, it's where are they habitating, where are they working? Um, it's, it's hard to do an exposure analysis that sits there and says, where is a body at any point in time? Um, so we look at these natural man-made features that are exposed to the hazard, and then we want to know, once you're exposed, are you vulnerable? 
Just because you're exposed does not mean you're vulnerable. Vulnerability means how fragile are you? How susceptible are you to impacts? Um, I can best illustrate this by codes and standards. We have codes and standards for a reason, to make buildings less fragile. So if I have a building that was built to codes and standards, it's less fragile than a building that was not. So when we look at vulnerability, we are looking at this concept of what we call fragility or how fragile is the asset. And, and that gets taken into context. And then last but not least is capability. And to me, this is the most important. And this is where I always start when I start looking at mitigation actions is what is my regulatory capability, my technical, financial, et cetera, as we just talked about, to deal with these impacts? What is my capacity to deal with these? And do I lack capacity? And is a possible action uh, in my plan to increase that capacity? So when we look at risks and are those four functions and we ask ourselves, how do we reduce risk? We can, we can look at it in this point, right? Can we manipulate the hazard? And some hazards we can manipulate, right? Uh, we have a whole federal agency tasked with manipulating hazards, especially flood hazards. It's called the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And that's our channels and our dikes and our levees and our dams. These are all manipulating the hazard to try to control it so that it doesn't flood. Um, we can manipulate landslides. Um, vegetation management of wildfire risk is considered manipulating a wildfire hazard. So a lot of hazards you can't. Earthquake, you can't manipulate the earthquake hazard. I am not aware of anybody that's been able to fuse a, a plate yet. And so certain hazards you cannot manipulate. So if you can't manipulate the hazard, can I at least reduce the exposure? Now, when we talk about reducing the exposure, we're saying, can we get the asset out of harm's way? And, you know, perfect example, this is property acquisition or relocation. If I can't remove the exposure, can I at least reduce my vulnerability? Can I harden it? Can I make it less fragile? And these we, you know, emphatically refer to as retrofits. So elevating the home in a floodplain or doing a seismic structural retrofit in an earthquake zone or, or doing like a, building a French drain in a landslide area, that's a retrofit. Um, in, then, then the last, but once again, not least, can we increase our capability to respond to those events? And these are, are, are really important factors because, you know, I always tell people, if you don't know how you're gonna pay for the local match on a grant, how are you gonna go after the grant? It's really important. I mean, that's a fundamental question. And, you know, I always tell people, you don't wanna do this plan and say that you have the, the access to the money, but you don't have the capability to go get the money. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, that's counterintuitive. So this increasing capability is really a starting point for any mitigation plan. Um, this risk assessment is based upon data and technology, and uh, the data and technology we're using is what we call geospatial or GIS, geographic information systems. And this graphic kind of shows the concepts of the layering for which we, we, we strive to do. We move from one to five, where one is we wanna understand what our terrain is. It's what we call our terrain model or a DEM, digital elevation model. Uh, for this plan, we're using a really high level technology called LIDAR which is light imaging detection and ranging, which creates a terrain model. And so once we have the terrain model, we stack our assets on top of the terrain. That's our road layer, our structure layer, our, you know, any infrastructure information that we have, what assets do we have, we'll put that on top of the earth. And then we overlay the hazard. And then once we overlay the hazard, then we wanna overlay information that tells us how severe the hazard is. Um, the best representation of this is a depth grid. Uh, the deeper the flood water, the more the damage. So uh, we have the ability to create what we call flood hazard depth grids. Uh, for earthquake, we can look at uh, what we call uh, PGA maps where we have estimated ground uh, 
peak ground acceleration values. Uh, we have fire hazard severity zones for wildfire. We have slope stability models for landslide. That all helps us correlate severity. And then what we do is an analysis. And, and the outcome of the analysis gives us uh, the impacts of risk based upon uh, this layering information. Uh, we're using a FEMA risk assessment platform for this plan called HAZUS, which takes this information and puts it into a, a singular um, uh, platform for assessing it that helps us give these outputs. HAZUS generates outputs for floods, earthquakes, uh, tsunamis, um, tornadoes, hurricanes, it does not have a function for landslides. It does not have a function for wildfire. Um, those, those are future models, we hope, excuse me. And, um, but right now they don't. So for those hazards, we had to kind of do a more qualitative approach using technology from, from hazards. Um, the hazards of concern addressed by this plan, once again, the focus is on natural hazards. So the natural hazards this plan assesses are avalanche, dam failure, earthquake, flood, landslide, um, in that landslide, we, we kind of refer to it as earth movement and subsidence. Um, you know, if you have subsidence, that is classified as a landslide hazard. Uh, under severe weather, we aggregated everything that we would associate with a weather event. So we brought in drought, uh, extreme heat, lightning, tornado, and winds. These are all what we call weather influence events. I know we have severe winter storm as a standalone event, but in Route County, that is got such an impact, it needed to be isolated by itself. So we have severe winter storms as a standalone event, and then last but not least, wildfire. Um, so we have all the data and analysis. I'm not gonna take a deep dive into the findings of that. That's all in the plan. We had a set of public meetings when we first finished that uh, risk assessment, uh, when we were able to actually have open air public meetings uh, where we presented that information. And so now what I'll do is once we did that risk analysis, all that information was shared with all our planning partners and that data was segregated by their area of influence. So Steamboat Springs got a set of results and, and um, um, Yampa got a set of results and Mount Order Water got a set of results so that they could actually look at the risk as it pertains to them. And then what we did is we walked them through a process about how to rank that risk and then based upon that ranking, uh, use that to inform where you needed to identify actions. So. Um, everybody started with their prior action plan that was covered that was covered by a prior action plan. Now we have new planning partners in this that we didn't have last time. So they had no prior action plan. So they were starting from scratch. But the ones that were in the plan last time had prior actions. So we asked them to look at those actions and say, okay, did you get it done? If you didn't get it done, why did you not get it done? Is it still viable? Should we carry it over to this plan so that you can reevaluate and reprioritize it? Um, so they looked at all this information and then, you know, really started to look at, okay, what is my action plan? What, what do I want to do in the next five years? And then we asked them, okay, if this is what you want to do, you know, when do you want to do it? Uh, do you, who's going to be the lead? Who's going to be a support agency? What hazards will it address? Uh, how are you going to pay for it? Uh, what grants are you going to go after? If the grant has a cost share, what, how are you going to meet the match? And then FEMA requires all projects to be prioritized with some sort of look at benefits versus cost. So we established a qualitative approach for assessing benefits and cost, and that was supposed to inform the prioritization of the plan. Sorry about that, I had a dog that needed to get out. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so then that helped develop the strategy. 
Um, the strategy, you know, the overall lead for this plan is going to be route county emergency management. And uh, they're going to coordinate this partnership and make sure that people, you know, meet their plan maintenance requirements and try to keep the body engaged over the next five years and hopefully coordinate as grants become available. Um, I mean, that's mission critical, right? The whole reason that we do these plans is so that we can pursue the funding. Um, FEMA has got a brand new program. It's going to hit the streets in October. It's called BRIC. Stands for Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities. And Congress, when I say Congress is all in, uh, Congress agreed to set aside 6% of the total disaster cost in any calendar year to fund proactive mitigation. Uh, the pot right now is sitting at almost $2 billion. And it's being expanded on what FEMA is going to fund. FEMA is now funding technical assistance. FEMA is now funding studies and analysis. FEMA is now funding uh, codes and standards enforcement and helping you have staffing for codes and standards enforcement. So it's being broadly expanded. So when I say Congress is all in, they're all in. A key way to that money is this plan. And, and it's going to be an annual cycle. And, uh, you know, most likely Mo's going to be the first to hear about it because the way FEMA works is through emergency management agencies. So when there's a notice of funding authority or authorization, it's going to go out to all emergency management functions. So that's why Route County is the lead on this because they're going to have the ability to do that. Um, we have set a table for ongoing tracking of the implementation of the plan where we, we talk about progress reporting. Uh, we want to be able to know where we're at. We want to be able to know if there's been turnover in staff. Um, that's really important, right? Because if somebody leaves, who's taking over that role to implement the, at the local level? So you got a, a coordinating role and, and that's great because you need a coordinator to really make sure that these multi-jurisdictional scope plans can survive. Um, now we're into this, you know, implement and adopt phase. And, you know, the very first thing that we do here is what we call a public comment period, right? So um, one of the rules in the, in the guidance is, is that you must provide the public an opportunity to comment on a draft plan. And so we have a draft plan. It's done. It's over 250 pages long. It's been broken into three parts. Uh, the three parts are as follows, planning process, where we discuss the, the process that this plan went through to develop. Uh, part two is the most robust section of it. It's all the risk assessment. Part three is the strategy. What are we going to do? Um, this plan profiles a, a ha eight hazards of concern, as we identified er earlier. It identifies and prioritizes over 100 actions. So remember, the last plan had 33. We're over 100. Um, it includes a real robust plan maintenance strategy that aims to keep the plan dynamic through what we call progress reporting. And it will have a five-year performance period. So in five years, it'll be time to update again and go through this process. So that's the plan, right? So now we're in this, it's done, it's ready for public comment. And so we're in this public comment period that, you know, officially started on the 5th. We noticed it and started it on the 5th. It was posted on, this, on the county's website. Uh, up until this meeting, there's been what we call a narrated PowerPoint. It's basically me just talking what I just talked to you about, the same presentation. So anybody that went to look at the plan was able to see this PowerPoint if they wanted more information. We have this live webinar tonight, which was advertised as an open public meeting. Um, the primary means for the public to comment on this is to access the plan through the website. And it's on the emergency management website at this address that I've listed here. Um, there is an email address on there where people have comments or concerns that they'd like to provide to us. They can send uh, comments. We've already received some comments to date, which is great. That means somebody's in there looking at it. Um, what's what'll happen is is when we when we get done with the comment period, 
We'll look at those comments and say, do they warrant changes to the plan? Um, not all comments will warrant changes to the plan. A lot of the comments we get are questions. Uh, well, what about this? Or what about that? And those aren't gonna warrant a, a change to the plan, but some can. And if we have to make changes to the plan, we'll make them and we'll make those revisions. And then once it's, once it's done, it's ready for submittal. It goes to California, or California, I'm sorry, Colorado, a Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. It goes to them first. It goes to the state first. And the state will do the first tier review. And if the state finds any issues, they'll send us back saying, okay, yeah, you hit the mark here. You didn't hit the mark there. Uh, you need further clarification here, blah, blah, blah. We'll make those changes. And then it goes back to the state. The state approves it. And then they will forward it on to FEMA Region 8. Once FEMA Region 8 gets it, they do what's called a concurrent review. They review the state's review and say, yeah, we agree. And if the FEMA agrees, they will then issue what's called APA, which stands for Approval Pending Adoption. This is all happening pre-adoption. We do not want this plan to be adopted until we have APA from FEMA. Because FEMA doesn't want you to have to adopt it twice. If FEMA comes back and wants changes, you don't want to have to go back and re-adopt the plan. So um, once we get APA, then we'll be in the adoption window and all uh, 15 planning partners will be required to adopt what we're, we'll get resolutions and that includes our districts. So district boards will be adopting this plan. Once we have our 15 resolutions in hand, we'll turn them back to the state and say, here you go, you're adopted Then the state will issue final approval. The five-year clock starts at the approval date from FEMA. So that means that that plan coverage will start from that time frame. Once it's done, once we're approved, now we're in the implementation phase, and that's where this whole dynamic plan maintenance strategy comes into play, progress reporting, uh, coordination, and all that, and that's all scripted in the plan. You'll see it. It's, there's a whole chapter on plan maintenance in the plan that uh, describes and how, how will Route County keep this plan forward-facing, keep the public informed, let the public have an opportunity to comment. It's all in there. Uh, once again, to reiterate, you know, the primary uh, spot to see this, and this will become the one-stop shop for this plan from here on out, is the website. Once it's approved and adopted and it's finalized, we'll create the final version and it will be housed on the website. As the county completes its progress reports, that's where they'll be housed and, and whatnot. What we are asking that if anybody is gonna provide comment and a specific comment where they would like to see a change, please cite the page number in a section of the plan so that we can go and see exactly what you're talking about. If all you're doing is providing a comment, hey, you know, this is great, but boy, I would sure like to see uh, better noticing next time or something like that. That's not gonna require change. We can duly note that. You don't have to cite anything. Um, but if you're really making a comment based on a, a specific, specific section of the plan, then please cite the page number and section number of the plan. Uh, the points of contact that you can have are Carla or myself. Um, Carla, is, like I said, has already received some comments and we'll be tracking all these. And once again, once we get to the end of the public comment period, we're gonna stop because we're gonna finalize the plan and submit it. That doesn't mean we can't still receive comments. We'll receive them, but at that point in time, there's not much we can do. Uh, because there's this dynamic plan maintenance strategy, which allows the, the county to go back and revisit this plan every year based on progress, that creates some windows of opportunities to make minor enhancements to the plan if they decide. So if we were to get comments after the plan was submitted or for review, that's probably the way they would be processed is through the plan maintenance grant. Um, that's it. Um, in a nutshell, that's the plan. And uh, I probably went a little longer than I planned. I apologize for that, but I just wanted to make sure I gave you all the detail that you needed. 
Um, I will open the floor to comments if you have any. Um, here's our contact information, both mine and Carla's. And like I said, we're, we're open for comments through the 19th. And uh, so anyway, if you have any questions, please let me know. I guess I have one question. Looks like Mark Thompson raised your hand. Go ahead, Mark. Thanks, Rob. Um, so I work for the, uh, the Colorado Office of Emergency Management, and I do the state level reviews of these plans uh, that Rob mentioned before it goes to FEMA. And, and I would just like to address a few points briefly um, to emphasize some of what Rob mentioned, as well as what Mo said at the beginning, and also uh, to address one of Christie's comments. Um, so really, although FEMA pays for these plans and, and they create eligibility for FEMA grant programs, they really are a community plan. And hopefully after listening to what um, Rob has said, you see uh, why the Planning Commission is one of the groups that uh, we wanna bring into this process. Uh, when we talk about integrated plans, particularly master comprehensive or land use plans that, that sort of direct or guide where future development goes, um, we want the risk assessment that's in these plans to inform uh, those other planning efforts so you don't get plans that are at cross purposes in, in terms of natural hazards, your risk, your exposure, and your vulnerability. Uh, it was good to see that uh, the, the, what the state considers its top four hazards are all addressed in your plan and that's flood, fire, uh, drought, and severe winter weather. Um, those are generally shared among most of the 64 counties, um, although wildfire can be less in some other parts of the state. Uh, Rob talked about your mitigation action strategy. Um, he, he addressed briefly other plans and, and capabilities, financial, administrative, technical, and whatnot. Uh, sometimes as you go through this, this planning process, you identify uh, desired capabilities. And, and one of your actions is, okay, we want to have that capability as a community so that we can reduce our risk moving forward. Um, and when you talk about near-term and future risk and vulnerability, oftentimes um, the things that you do with pen and paper are the most effective to reduce your risk, um, whether that's steering development away from hazard areas or, or restricting or prohibiting, um, you know, the codes that are in place for future buildings or significant renovations or upgrades to existing facilities um, are often more effective, uh, particularly cost-effective, than trying to uh, retrofit um, every existing building or, or structure in the community. And then finally, um, you know, some of the other agencies that we try and bring into this process, um, starting at our level and filtering down to the county and, and municipal level, is um, particularly for grant programs and their projects, are public works, road and bridge type folks, uh, Whoever controls the, the uh, capital improvement plan and implements projects through that, uh, whoever does fire mitigation, so that's where you start to see a lot of the fire protection districts come in. Uh, dam owners, there, there's another program uh, that FEMA introduced last year that's tangentially related to these mitigation plans, but uh, the Office of Dam Safety for the state works directly with the dam owners on that but the communities um, where those dams are do need to have one of these plans. Uh, and then floodplain managers. Um, so those are some other local partners that, that we have our 
uh, sister agencies at the state reach out to to promote these opportunities as well because mercy managers are, are not the right people to actually um, generally pursue project grants because they don't do projects like those um, so that's who we try and go after um, so again thanks for the opportunity to listen in and provide a little bit of feedback and, and input and hopefully that just reinforces some of the things that rob and mo uh, said at the beginning and, and to this point in the meeting that's awesome thanks mark appreciate that uh that uh add-on there that's that's good good fodder any other questions? Hey, Greg, go ahead. Yeah, for me, I'm just wondering about the layering for the GIS. Is this the only time that we will be able to get GIS layers is each time that we implement this? So it's only every five years? Or is there a plan in this that basically says every two years, every three years, and we don't have to always uh, implement a new plan to get the newest uh, levels of GIS uh, layering uh, that we have capable of? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I always encourage every community to track, monitor, maintain best available data and science as it comes available and not wait. Um, we, we created a, a much robust, more robust risk assessment this go around, A, once again, because we had better data, um, but it's totally updatable. Right, we get a new flood layer. We get a new, uh, you know. One thing I, I always say, what you know, when you have an event, capturing perishable data is mission critical. You know, you have a flood event, knowing where the high water was from that flood event is mission critical. And if you have high water marks, you can do a flood analysis. Um, if you have a fire, understanding where fire perimeters are and and knowing where the perimeter of the fire was. If you have a fire perimeter, you can assess fire risk. Um, so being set up to understand that as data becomes available it can help inform um i would hope that that is set up now i will say you know what ends up happening a lot of times with these plans when you get into the implementation phase right the technical assistance walks out the door right our contract's done <laughs> uh, we're the ones that build all these models we're handing this data back off to the county uh, we'll show them how to use it um, we're going to show them how to use their hazardous model and um, now what ends up happening, do they actually use it? Um, and a lot of times, you know, a lot of these things are very technical and you have to be using it to be able to do that. But at least if you understand what kind of data that you need when it becomes available, if you capture it and you have it and you're ready to roll and believe it or not, five years is going by real fast. And, and good planning, you usually start your update at about year three and a half, right? Especially if you're pursuing grant funding to try to fund your grant. By the time you apply for the grant and you get it, you might be right in the middle of year four. You want to have your plan updated before expiration. You don't wait for it to expire. So in theory, your next round of planning on this could be happening in four years. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I always tell everybody, understand data, understand its role and, and how you can track that. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. You got something to add on that? Um, I do. One, uh, so the state updated its plan through 2018. Um, and we did a much better job this time of making sure that our consultants um, gave us all of that raw data uh, for HAZIS, for GIS, um, across the state down to the county level. Um, and so uh, we've been able to share that with a number of communities across the state to, to supplement their existing GIS uh, information or capabilities, or just you know, they pass it on to their planning consultant and it, and it sort of simplifies some of the work that they need to do. 
Um, and so we'll start our update uh, probably in 2022. And so really within about two years of, of your plan uh, being finalized and approved, there will be some new data available, again, down to the county level um, from the state, which uh, in many counties, you know, you can then take that data, overlay assessor data to see how your vulnerability and exposure has changed since you wrote this particular plan. Um, and so that's just one source of some, uh, some newer analysis halfway through your plan's life cycle. Yeah, good point. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mark. Uh, Steve, go ahead. I actually have two questions. One was kind of technical at the beginning of your presentation or close to the beginning. You made a comment that caught my attention, but I'm not sure if I understood it totally. And it goes this way. <coughs> can, uh, so my question is, can a plan be provided slash updated after disaster? And if so, and it's done, then can the entity be available, make funds available or can it be eligible for funds, I should say? Uh, so you're saying, can it be updated if you had an expired plan or if it's an actual current plan? No, expired. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that's happening a lot. I mean, there's a lot of jurisdictions out there that let their plans lapse. Um, FEMA has what they call the ability to file what's called an extenuating circumstance. <laughs> and I've actually had the pleasure <laughs> of filing, filing two of these to where communities let their plan lapse and then they get clobbered. And then they're in the middle of the throes of a response and are saying, oh my God, I let my plan lapse because I was responding to it in an event. And, okay. and so the regional office can issue what they call an extenuating circumstance if you, if you sell, a, sell a hard enough story. But here's the real, the truth of the matter is the key on this is what grant program you're applying for. A, an approved hazard mitigation plan has two different facets of eligibility when you sit there and you look at the grant programs. There's two types of grant programs. There's pre-disaster and post-disaster. And FEMA has a different set of rules for both. So for pre-disaster, you must have an approved plan to submit an application. Okay, uh, so for that brick funding, FMA, if you don't have an approved plan, you can't even submit an application. For post-disaster, okay. they'll let you submit an application, but you've got to have an approved plan by award. And so for post-disaster HMGP, if you think about it, a lot of times it, it takes, it could almost take a year to get notice of award for a project grant because you have to go through what's called environmental historic review. And so I've seen communities where they go, okay, I, don't, I have an expired plan. I can go ahead and submit an application. I got a year to get my plan done because that's when I hope to get award. And so you don't wanna have to play that game. In real out reality, you really wanted to stay ahead of the curve and try to do that. But there are okay. latitudes you can take to, you know, addressing the issue. I mean, you know, it's it's the bottom line is, while you you can sit there and say, yeah, no plan, no money. It, it's it there's latitude, right? And I will say that that there's regional variance on that as well. And different regions are going to respond to that differently. Mark, did Thank you, you have an add on? I had a second question. Um, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, the second question was, and this is probably directed more so at Christy or I guess you all, as the as the the planning commission moves forward on updating the existing master plan, are we who are, are we keeping people informed as we should, um, and if not, who should we be contacting or at least CCing on all of our moves 
um, as we move forward on this. So um, am I muted? No. Um, so are you referring to specifically this plan or the overall update to the master plan? I'm really on our overall update to the master plan. It occurs to me that there are issues that may or may not surface as we update the master plan that should be or maybe should be brought to the attention of um, the hazard people, you know, particularly Mo. And I don't know if Mo's copied on all of our actions or not. And I guess that's yeah. my question. So Mo and I have had some preliminary conversations when we started our update um, and then through his process as well. Um, as you know, our master plan is quite outdated as well. It's 2003, um, but it has served us well. And we use the policies outlined in the master plan, as you know, as recommendations as we review our land use applications. We do have a specific chapter, chapter eight of the current master plan, which indicates and outlines and discusses hazards of development. And specifically in chapter 8.17, um, discusses wild, wildland fire hazards, along with specifically chapter 8.18, which discusses the policies outlined for best practices and policies that should be followed as we're reviewing uh, land use applications. Obviously, there is a, a direct connection here of the importance to make sure that the policies we have written are, are current, uh, they're still applicable, and, um, and I think for the most part, they, the overall philosophy is, I think the question would be, is there more that we can be doing? Is there other things that we should be looking at and considering as we continue to go through the update process. Um, at this point, the master plan, like their plan, was, was essentially put on hold um, through, through COVID. Um, I think that at this point, we are going to be moving forward with venues like this to talk to directly to our experts in those like direct subject matter um, chapters in the master plan and using the next couple of months until um, there's a decision on where we're going with the master plan, specifically what funding is really um, really the issue, the update process. But I feel, you know, venues like this is really important for us to do our fact finding and seeing where, you know, where there are places in the master plan, we, we could be more modernized and thinking about, um, uh, different things that um, we could be considering or, you know, even is chapter eight still the relevant place for this and is it something, a, a new chapter or a new area? And, and not to say that I think we have to have two different plans. It could be discussing the updated hazard mitigation plan in that chapter and referring directly to that. And it's all just going to depend on how we um, most appropriately want to address these, these certain issues. So, um, you know, I guess, I don't know if I directly answered your question, but um, yes, we have been communicating and that was the intent of, of scheduling this meeting before you all. 
um, so they could let you know where they're at and what they have been doing. And then for us, just think about ways that we can integrate these plans and, and make sure our policies are current. Um, you did answer my question and you answered it at the onset. There apparently is a fair amount or there's conversation between you and Mo and that's how kind of that's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Cool. Hey, Mark, did you have something you wanted to say? Um, yeah, real, real briefly about, um, you know, the extraordinary or extenuating circumstances following a disaster. Um, first, following the flooding of 2013, FEMA did grant those circumstances to uh, a few of our counties that were, that were heavily impacted by the flooding. Um, but what that meant is that in the immediate year following um, the worst flooding they had seen in, in a very long time, they had to update their plan while they were responding to and recovering from that flood. And that's not when anybody wants to do this. Um, but then in, you know, around the, the 2015 disasters, which were smaller in scale, but sort of cobbled together across the state, uh, El Paso County asked for that and FEMA said, no, uh, you really didn't have any circumstances prior to this disaster that stopped you from having this plan. Um, so we encourage everyone with influence in a community to say, no, we, we need to keep this plan updated. We don't want to, we don't want to try and rely on the fact that, that FEMA may give us this, uh, you know, this extenuating circumstances decree. Um, so we definitely would encourage you to move forward with that. Yeah, it, it, that kind of goes back to my slide. I say we're the last time you really want to have to worry about doing something when you're in the throes of recovery is, oh, I got to get my mitigation plan done. That's no different than do I want to sit there and look at different alternatives or what is the best alternative when you're trying to recover. But um, So any other questions? I thought I saw Troy's hand raised. Troy, oh, yeah, Troy. Do, you, do you have a question? Well, I think Steve touched on it, and uh, my thoughts were similar going forward. Um, and it revolves around the master plan because obviously that's where planning commission um, has a fairly large and significant role. And I know that Christie had meetings with department heads. Um, and so there's maybe a couple of questions folded in here uh, for Mo and Christy. Um, is, do you see this uh, as being like a referral agency on a specific petition in front of planning commission? Or, I mean, would, would Mo provide that type of feedback for a specific petition on planning commission? Um, and then secondly, is, um, is Mo going to provide that feedback because we keep coming back to the master plan and the update of it? Is it, as Christy said, we're just going to put an asterisk in the master plan that says, oh, see the hazard mitigation plan, or does, um, does Mo want something, text, chapters, paragraphs? Subchapters uh, inserted into the um, master plan document. Um, I can oh, answer the first part. <laughs> uh, 
um, let me uh, let me just explain the referral process first. When we get land use applications, we send out referrals for comment on on for applications. Typically, we historically haven't sent um, referrals to Mo's department uh, to comment. Generally, we send it to the fire department. Um, but we that doesn't mean that we can't. Um, and I think where we would send comments to Mo, it would be on the onset of the application to see um, is there, you know, on our mapping or some sort of concern that we would want to get him involved. Um, so that's something Mo and I can coordinate. And if the Planning Commission, you know, would like us to send uh, referral comments, we can certainly do that. Um, and I think it will be more important to do so moving forward once the the plan update and he's part of the process, um, you know, of, of where that would be appropriate. Um, you know, I think we're always looking for as much comments as possible from our experts on any land use application. So that certainly can be done. Um, as far as the end result of the master plan and how that looks, I look at Mo as a partner, you know, and, and a referral on this plan update to really be our go-to expert to say, you know, what information, um, you know, whatever the wording comes up with or how that chapter looks, if it ends up being a specific chapter or included elsewhere, that he would be part of that process. Sort of like how you're all part of this process as well. Um, but I'll defer to Mo on, on his thoughts on that. Well, I think uh, as far as the workflow goes, the, the first step will be, I think, that the hazard mitigation plan uh, informs the master, <coughs> excuse me, the master plan so that uh, we're providing information on not just the hazards, uh, but some of the objectives as well as the projects that we use to reduce the hazard. And then some of those projects um, may be uh, incorporated by the master plan. Uh, so for example, if you're, <clears throat> we're, we're trying to uh, decrease uh, uh, susceptibility to wildfires to houses in a wild and urban interface, and, and now we want to start looking at um, codes or something like that, um, that would be a, a mitigation project that could possibly be included in the master plan. But then coming back down the other ways, those projects that are um, completed or taken on by this committee or this commission, uh, we would want to include in our updates uh, to the hazard mitigation plan to show what projects are done and the status of those projects as well. So I think initially the HMP feeds into the master plan, uh, but once you actually get into the, the mitigation activities, um, there'd be, the information will be going back and forth. Yeah, Mark, go ahead. Um, and so if, if I understood the, the question, um, there are a few communities in Colorado that have truly integrated their master or comprehensive plan with their mitigation plan. Um, but what they found out within the, the five-year cycle of the mitigation plan was the required update for that didn't align with 
um, updating the comprehensive plan or, or the master plan. Um, so what's more typical is to see them refer to each other. Um, and, and so the, the commission may, for example, when you update your master plan, um, you may refer to the risk assessment or a particular portion of the risk assessment for the 2020 mitigation plan. And then five years later, you may update that referral um, in the master plan. Because uh, it's unlikely you're gonna update the master plan in five years, um, just based on what I've seen across the state. Um, but you could, you could update that referral to the newer information that's in the next mitigation plan. That's a really good point. Uh, APA actually recommends a sub-element um, to where you call it a hazards element or a safety element. And that element by itself can be updated out of cycle with the rest of the master plan. And so if you, if you link your mitigation plan to that sub-element, now they're married. And that makes perfect sense, right? Because every five years you're updating your risk assessment, you now have a new vision on risk. If you have that being directly applicable to a sub-element that is updatable without doing the rest of it, um, it's, it's really nice. I mean, keep in mind, really, the real benefit of this mitigation plan for master planning is the risk assessment. <laughs> you have spatial extent and location data for hazards. And you can now do overlays on buildable lands analysis, already built analysis, and, and, and make decisions based upon, do I really want high-density development in a dam failure area? And, um, you know, so that's where, where it starts. And yeah, there could be policies in a mitigation plan. You know, we talk about increasing capability. Uh, one of those is codes and standards. You know, you, you have a lot of choices about codes and standards. You can adopt higher resolution flood codes. You can adopt higher standard building codes. Those are all things that may actually come out of a general plan that can fold into a mitigation plan or vice versa. But um, you know, I, there, there's some really, really good guidance on there, out there on plan integration, with, with, especially with land use planning. APA is probably the foremost. Um, and, uh, you know, and also, uh, Mark, I just correct me if I'm, is, is Colorado a growth management state or, or master plans mandated by state mandate? Um, yeah, I, I think those are one of the three required plans that each each county is supposed to have right so some type of master plan some type of tourism plan and some type of emergency plan yeah so that's another thing is you you might want to look at state guidance on what latitudes you have to deviate from the norm on a master plan but i've seen a lot of communities do this sub-element approach and it works pretty seamlessly um, some states actually mandate a sub-element approach um, where they'll sit there and say you have to have a safety element a critical areas element or you know uh, uh, you know, economic development element. And they do that. So, you know, you, if you need to update this a specific element, you can do that without having to do the entire master plan. Uh, Troy, did you have your hand up? I do. Okay. Um, and you were just making a comment that um, is what I'm trying to get at here. I think you said something to the effect of, oh, do I really want development? there in some hazard area well what i'm trying to understand is is how does mo or whoever then get into that process I and mean, i don't know that they're into the building permit process and if it's a development that's a planning process so in order to implement 
the pieces and the parts here that you were referring to, where do they come in in that process? Well, I mean, that, that gets down to what is the core capability of the county. And, um, you know, you could get really elaborate where you could create an overlay, a hazard overlay, and any permit activity that comes in and intersects that hazard overlay, it triggers a response. And whether that response is a review process or whatever, I mean, but you'd have to have the automated capability to do that. It could be as simple as, yeah, let's see what Mo thinks. Now, Mo's going to have all this data spatially, right? You'll have it in a GIS environment, and it's already broken down by parcel. So it's as simple as, you know, if you get a permit application, a development permit application for a parcel, and you know that APN, Mo could look up that APN and say, does it interface a hazard zone? Yeah, there's wildfire, there's flood zone on it, it's in a damn failure zone, it's in an avalanche zone, whatever. And then you could sit there and go, okay, now what do we want? Um, I mean, it could be as simple as you wanted or as complex as you wanted. I guess it really gets down to what are you going to do once you find out that it's there? And, and so do you have codes and standards that you will apply? Now, you do for flood, right? You're all in the National Flood Insurance Program. You all have flood damage prevention ordinances. You have minimum standards for flood. But that's only in the FEMA map floodplain. Could you apply those same floodplain standards just to get a margin of safety in a dam inundation area? Because you've got a ton of damn inundation areas in the county that are not in a map floodplain. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to take a policy, right? You're going to have to amend your ordinance to be able to do that. That's a great mitigation action after you actually could pull it off. Um, you know, Mo talked about, you know, not expanding into the urban wildland interface. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm going to control density? Am I going to have mandated, you know, defensible space, no shake roofs, mandated residential sprinklers? I mean, it, it, it's an onion. You can keep peeling on all down and and once again when it comes down to what am I going to do if I say I don't want to do that do you have the regulatory authority to do that and that really gets down to that regulatory capability um, I mean to me this is a perfect opportunity to be asking these hard questions when you're in the middle of a master plan update because you now have data that you didn't have on risk and vulnerability before and um, that's a good starting point and, you know, so if you sit there and you say, yeah, that's not extensive enough to worry about. We, we're not growing there. <laughs> and I've seen communities do that. We're, we're not growing there. We don't need to worry about it now. We're going to update this in five years. Let's see if we're growing there in five years. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it's really important to have, if you're going to integrate these two documents, to be able to, to, to have the nexus where you can update something. And the real key to that is this risk information that can inform sound land use planning. Mm -hmm. And um, FEMA struggled with this back in 2000 when they came up with the rules. They wanted a land use component to it. And they realized that if mitigation plans had a land use component, they wouldn't get adopted because most communities don't want land use in this document, right? Because they have other mechanisms for land use. It could have policies that recommend sound land use, but that needs to defer to that land use capability. And so FEMA backed off on that and said, yeah, we don't want to recreate the wheel on land use. And so um, that's why you don't see a mandate for zoning implications or a mandate for general plans other than, you know, identifying integration opportunities. Did that answer your question, Troy? I would also just add, Troy, um, you know, how we review, the staff planners review the applications now. That's one of our, our checks up front is we have the GIS mapping and if something is flagged that it comes up as hazard area, we comment on that 
and provide that in the staff reports for all your consideration. Um, knowing that we'll have, you know, updated policies and an updated plan and hazard mitigation plan to refer to, if something did come up as a hazard area, we would likely just send a referral to Mo also to comment on as part of your regular referral agencies as one of your experts on comments on the land use application. It can start simple, guys. It doesn't Any other questions for Rob or Carla? Yeah, I have some questions. Hello, Billy? Yeah, yes, go Billy. You turn me on? Yeah, no, you always were on. Oh, well, that's good. Um, yeah, so I'd like to follow up on that uh, hazard identification um, stuff that we were just talking on. And uh, a couple of thoughts. The, um, as far as, are there gonna be some recommendations in the plan or, or does anybody think there should be some recommendations about some um, additional requirements that would help mitigate some of the uh, natural hazards that we're dealing with here? I mean, I, I think one of the best examples might be um, avalanche areas. Um, you know, if we can map some avalanche areas and associate that with maybe some potential changes or updates in our zoning um, that could definitely mitigate um, you know potential damage i mean it wouldn't be any different really than telling somebody you don't want to build in the floodplain because we don't want to have to fix it after it happens so do you um rob is that something that could be considered are you thinking about making some uh, recommendations it was made a good point that well you know kind of they've been left out because people probably don't like them um, and you can't really mandate them as part of the, ha the hazard medication plan but doesn't it make sense to um, at the very least make some recommendations and say hey this is one area where we you know we really we don't really have it now but it really might be a good idea I have some follow-up but I'd kind of like to get your response to that yeah I mean that, that's once again that's increasing core capability to reduce vulnerability. And Mark said this earlier, I mean, you know, sometimes it's just best to, to, to focus on new development than it is the old development. Because sooner or later, you're gonna have the opportunity to retrofit or do something with that old development because it's gonna get damaged. And when you when it gets damaged, you rebuild it and you rebuild it to a higher standard. But, um, but I will say that sometimes regulatory standards are viewed as political obstacles. <laughs> And uh, like I said, this plan has to be both publicly and politically supported. Um, that was the option that the county had when they put together their action plan. I don't, I don't recall any real push for adding an avalanche code and standard, zoning code and standard or anything action in the plan. It's, it's not too late. <laughs> um, it won't be too late until this plan goes to the, the, to the state. Um, that's why we have a public comment period and you know uh, that definitely if you feel strongly enough about that especially if you wanted to be official position from the zoning commission uh, if Mo came to to Carla and I said yeah add an avalanche code and standard action it's in there we can add it um, but I, it, it, you, it's got to be it's got to be politically and publicly 
acceptable, right? The last thing we want to have happen, right, is we put it in there and then it goes through your board and they won't adopt because it's got a, a standard in there that they want removed. And we don't want to have to do that after the plan's been approved by FEMA and the state. Okay, so if I, I think that's, you know, I'd definitely like to recommend that the avalanche thing get, get at it. What would you recommend as a process for um, Boulder County to make that happen? I mean, like you said, it's a political thing. We've got to get people involved. You've got to have people like that idea. Um, what's the next step? I mean, so, I mean, who, who has to agree at this point that, yeah, let's look into that. Okay, now I will add, when we did the risk analysis, the the primary exposure to avalanche was roads okay there was not a lot of built environment now that doesn't mean there's not i and i once again i don't know where your growth projections are we know where these avalanche zones are we've mapped them so we have the spatial i think when you look at your master plan you have to ask the question are we anticipating growth here if the answer to that is yes then definitely i would highly recommend you put that in as an action um keep in mind you got to go back through this again in five years four years <laughs> Uh, uh, Rob, as a, as, a, as a point of clarification, just to kind of move this thing. Number one, unless I miss my guess, but I don't think so. We already know, and we have the mapping from GIS presently, just like we have unstable slope mapping and a number of other features that are already available to us. So I don't know that we really need to expand on that because we already got it. Yeah, I think you, you have the information, but do you have the code or the standard to prohibit something? To or to regulate others. something. So, Steve, to, to elaborate on what you said, we already have the mapping. Uh, I guess that was one of the uh, little maybe petty questions that I had is I didn't uh, I didn't note in the report the source of the mapping. Um, you know, for all the different areas that we addressed, most of them there was pretty clear where the mapping came from. Uh, the particular map that we had for avalanche area safety areas didn't have any. Uh, I couldn't find. A reference source. Um, let me let me back up from there uh, to the mapping situation. Um, a couple of related things. As far as the detail map that we have, obviously, you know what we have in the plan now is very general. You can't really see specifically where a particular residence is, and uh, I wasn't aware that we actually had it tied into um, the assessor's maps or whatever that we just. Like a corner of it, my property, um, whether or not um, somebody was going to take a look at that area to look at more closely. The maps that come out, the GIS maps that you got, are they going to be um, readily available for anybody to get copies of and tune in and see how the, the overlay zone um, really matches with that map? So you got a detailed GIS map, and then you got maybe a generalized. Um, Earthquake map, you know, the lines on the map, you got them both there. Um, my question is, how is that really going to work? I mean, you said that, yeah, we're going to update them, we're going to keep them, they're a lot better than they were. All those things are great, okay? Um, but my question is, how is it really going to work in practice with um, somebody in the county planning department really being able to look at this really nice map and see whether the overlay is really valuable or accurate? Can you address that question? 
Yeah, the, the detail of the maps that are in the plan do not represent the detail of the data that's available, right? It, I, I can't generate a map. It would be so big to include every parcel lot line at intersects the area. It's, 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 it's just too spatial. So all we really do is we generate a map that says, hey, we have this data. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, but that data will, will be transferred to the county, right? So now... The GIS department would have it. Yeah. Okay, and the question, question. I guess, the question, I guess, is, okay, so how is that data going to be used? That's, that's, that's beyond the scope of this plan, right? If, that's, I can, that's, if I can just clarify, I feel like we're going down this rabbit hole, and I just <laughs> okay. want to make, I want to just make some things clear, is that we already have the, the tools built into the master plan currently. Yes, it's older and it needs to be updated with more current information, but we already have policies specific to avalanche hazards in our master plan under a chapter, in that chapter 18, uh, I'm sorry, chapter eight. And specifically, this is under 815 and 8.16 for the policies. So we do have the tools and mechanisms in place, and that's all part of the staff reports that we write that we, are looking at these geological hazards or avalanche prone areas or um, wildland fire hazards. And we craft our staff report and we add some information and we comment on that and give recommendations. And some of those recommendations come from our referral agencies as well. So we have those policies already in place um, and that is the process we currently follow. What I'm hearing is that there are going to be updated maps as part of this plan, the hazard mitigation plan, and we will eventually have those updated maps, but staff has access to the current GIS, and we work together with them as we're reviewing land use applications looking for these potential hazards. So those mechanisms are in place currently right now, but um, we do need to, as part of the update, make sure that they are current and is there more we can be doing. Hey, I, I hope I haven't taken up too much of everybody's time, but uh, two questions. Try and make them quick. And I know Steve thinks when I say quick, he does. I don't mean it. Um, <laughs> kind of, but keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, you mentioned the referral and stuff from the county to uh, tie in with all these great uh, maps that we've got, which I think is great. Um, right now, I think the, an example, I think it needs to be expanded, the referrals. Um, for example, if somebody, we think we, something's going on in the flood zone, I'm not sure that the, a referral to the fire, fire department is maybe the best way. And maybe we need to somebody who's more technically involved in the referral. That's a general question, you know, because I, I think we should take a look at that. Um, and one other minor point, I was looking for a source for the um, fire hazard uh, mapping um, and uh, I couldn't find it. So if you could just put that on your list of things to check out, that'd be great. And, and I'm done. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome, Billy. And actually those were comments more so than questions, but I get it. Yeah, you're good. Oh, okay. um, I can, I any can other question, any other questions for Rob or his team? Perfect. Hearing none, um, in behalf of the Planning Commission, um, Rob, I really appreciate your comments. Mo, Cheryl, Rob, Carla, Mark, 
unless you're really interested in hearing an administrator's report for the planning commission and from staff, um, you're more than welcome to sign off. And again, I appreciate you taking the time and the effort to spend with us. And with that thought in mind, we're gonna move forward on the next agenda item. And again, we won't be disappointed if you decide to leave. <laughs> thank you, thank you everybody. for that applause. Thank you. Thanks and have a good night. Thank you. Bye. Christy, it's just us. All right. Go. Um, so for administrator's report, um, I'm just pulling up the agenda. And while I do that, um, I just wanted to share with you, if you didn't already know, that um, we received some sad news this week uh, when John Merrill put in his resignation. Um, it was a little unexpected that he decided to do this. It was more so for personal reasons um, in him doing so. So we are uh, losing people left and right. Um, so um, on both ends, and really that's for um, Board of Adjustment, we're struggling there too. We only have four active current members of Board of Adjustment. Um, and we have a couple of meetings lined up and so far would be okay that we can move forward with only the four because that is a quorum but for board of adjustments particularly they you know like you guys you would need um, unanimous decision across the board um, so we could run into a problem um, i may be um, nagging some of you begging <laughs> for some volunteers um, coming up for Board of Adjustment. Um, I see I see uh, Bill over there smiling and uh, really interested. <laughs> um, so Christy, they meet on Mondays? They do. They, okay. they meet on Mondays. Um, we have a meeting scheduled for this Monday. Um, and then we don't have anything scheduled till July. And July 13th will be the next meeting and Board of Adjustment has opted on, mainly because most of their applications have been pretty straightforward so far. I hope I didn't jinx myself, but they opted for less meetings um, and, and having um, more than one application scheduled. Um, but for whatever reason, Board of Adjustment, historically, we have gone months without a hearing and, or having applications and we've been bombarded with variance applications. I don't know what's going on, um, but we actually just received two new ones that we have to schedule for July also. Um, and that's just this week. So um, that's just something to keep in mind. And anybody who is interested um, would be very, very appreciative. The, um, and now with John resigning, and then um, there is also another member who you've never met, uh, Rohil, who was actually on Board of Adjustment and he requested to move to Planning Commission and that was granted by the Board of County Commissioners and he hasn't responded to one email, phone calls, I don't know what's going on. So 
So we are technically down two members now. So um, John was West Route, um, or is he at what? No, he's West Route. And Rohil was the city of Steamboat Spring. No, that's you, Greg. No, no, no. Yeah, right. So he was alternate one. <laughs> and um, so collectively, we need three board of adjustment and now two planning commissioners. So I need to coordinate with Mark Collins, the county manager, um, the interim county manager on advertising. Um, I'm going to enlist all of you to help solicit anybody that you think may be interested or a good fit for either board. Um, but just to give you a heads up of where we're at, um, you know, we're, we're obviously in good shape for planning commission, but then we have a hearing like this and I actually didn't hear from um, anybody that didn't show up today. Um, I think Roberta might've reached out to Steve, um, but I'm not sure. Yeah, she did. Yeah. I didn't get that message. Um, that means she might've just copied Ronnie and I didn't coordinate with Ronnie and maybe that's the same for some others. Uh, tonight, obviously- uh, Actually, Christy, after I reviewed the text that she sent, I naturally assumed without looking that she CC'd you and or Ronnie and the reality is no, it was just to me. So that's okay. a little bit my bad. Yeah, um, and, for not and, and sharing just as a reminder, I think most of you are, you know, obviously really good at it, but it's just really communication. So if you can't make a meeting, it's obviously understandable. We're asking a lot of you, you know, with weekly meetings right now, and that's mainly because we are, we're that busy. Right. Um, we're just being inundated with applications um, and really not to get a backlog on the other end, but there will be a point I feel like we can collectively have a discussion of where we're at with applications and um, whether we go back to a regular schedule or start putting more on. Um, but if you can't make a meeting, please just shoot me an email. Um, you know, myself and Ronnie, um, you can copy Steve or just reply all if you can't make a meeting just so we um, are prepared because a lot goes into obviously coordinating these virtual meetings, as you know. Um, so if we need to reschedule or something, we have the ability to do that. Um, so talking about the, the upcoming schedule, we have for, oh, hold on one second. Um, next week, we have scheduled another presentation. I don't think it will be as long, but we may have people interested, uh, the public that is. Um, and that would be from the school district, and that is a discussion on the overall site design um, and to answer questions for you. Um, so that is next week scheduled for the 16th. Then, oh, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong calendar, I'm sorry. I was gonna say, that doesn't make any sense. Not, so that would be the 18th. 18th, maybe. Yeah, so the 18th. And then June 25th, we have a lot consolidation application up in Steamboat Lake. Looking forward to July, uh, we don't have anything scheduled for the week of 4th of July. Uh, we have one application, also a lot consolidation in Steamboat Lake um, for July 9th. Um, and the 16th would be our regular day. And at this point, we don't have anything else scheduled. Um, 
and I will, um, I haven't been in contact with anybody else interested wanting to come present to you all, um, any of our experts. I had been in communication with, um, with Erin Light and Lynn Holiday on a water discussion. I know that's something you're interested in, but being that, you know, I, it's not my intent to bombard you weekly with meetings just to fill an agenda. Uh, those two, the one today and the one um, scheduled for next week, were in the pipe before COVID. Um, and then when we kind of scheduled it with them, we also had all these other applications ready to be scheduled also. Um, so if you're all okay with it, I can hold back on, on you know, presentations to you and we can just focus on applications. And I feel come July, um, we can, we have the 9th and we can either go with the 16th if we have items to schedule or we can see about where we want to schedule those. Come next week, we should have more of an idea of how many applications we have in the pipe to schedule. Why don't we wait till next week? Okay. We'll pick up on them. Okay. Um, and that's all I think I had at this moment. Um, do you guys have any questions or thoughts, ideas? <laughs> I think good? we're good. I'm good. All right. All right. Um, Anybody? We're good. Okay. okay. Um, so thank you all for participating. And if anybody has any questions or concerns and want to talk to me about anything, um, please reach out. Don't worry. Thank you, Christy. <laughs> All Thank right. you, everybody else. Have a good evening. Yes. We are adjourned. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Sarah, I have the recording on my... Yeah.